Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Collateral Damage. Uh, I am Mike Wilson, and I have my amazing co-host, Maureen Cavanaugh, with me today. How are you doing? I got to hang around you more often. Yes, amazing. <laughs> Very good. See? I'm good. <laughs> Compliments across the board. It's all this social distancing and isolating. It just makes me want to be nice to people, you know? Yes. Um, still, hopefully by the time this airs, we will no longer be social distancing because I've had more than enough of it. I have to tell that would you. be pretty cool. I mean, yeah. I, I, listen, I'm I'm getting a lot done. Like I saw I saw a meme the other day that was like, if you don't come out of this with a new skill or self improvement or something like yeah. that, then you wasted this opportunity. So I'm uh, I'm trying to get as much as I possibly can out of this quote downtime um, and uh, maybe come out of this with something new. So hopefully our listeners are as well. Um, so today we have a special guest, Ryan Ward, the whistleblower, is joining us today. And uh, so Ryan is a consultant uh, with uh, his company, Ward Recovery Group. And he's also a person in recovery and has been very vocal and uh, advocates for uh, various forms of recovery. My understanding that there's no one cookie cutter way to address this. And, uh, you know, I personally have seen a lot of uh, the articles and comments and stuff that you've put out on LinkedIn, and and I, I appreciate you being so vocal, and I'm glad that you joined us today. And um, I'm curious to know uh, what kind of sparked your passion to go down this road, because there are a lot of people that have had bad experiences. There are a lot of people in recovery. There are a lot of people um, that have had similar experiences but aren't so passionate and vocal. Like what what sparked you? What lit the fire for Ryan Ward? Uh, well, first, I appreciate both of you for what you do and having me today. And uh, I, I don't really—I'm glad everybody's uh, doing the, the social distancing part. But I'm actually finding more social about it. Last night, I was with a group of high school friends on Zoom as they were—they were having a drinking happy hour contest. <laughs> I'm entertained by it, but that's the most social we've been beyond texting in a long time. It's more physical distancing than anything. Um, but when I like what you said, first, I'm not an anti-A person. Just I'm an advocate for what they call MAT or medicated assisted uh, therapy. For me, it's Suboxone. Um, it doesn't mean I'm anti any other therapies. Everybody is unique. <laughs> um, the one chapter in AA that says we're all the same, you're not terminally unique, that I do disagree with because we are all very much unique. We all react differently to medications, therapies, everything's different. Um, and when you ask what lit me, I would have never in a million years thought I would come down this path. Um, I went to high school, college with the focus of becoming an investment banker. You know, I, I, that was my major. That was my focus. I graduated from college. I had a good career. I ended up actually going into recruiting because I didn't want to move to uh, New York City. But climbed the corporate ladder, was very successful, had a lot of fun, but had no problems with drinking. I was a weekend warrior. I didn't use drugs, and, you know, other than working hard, I didn't have any addictions, you know, I didn't, any problems, I guess, if you will. Um, at some point, I started having some back pain, visited one of my parents' neighbors, who was a, a known neurosurgeon. Um, I would equate him to Brett Favre coming back and playing today. <laughs> like, he was really good, but you wouldn't draft him now. Uh, I didn't get a second opinion. This was when I was 27 years old. So, on a healthy person with a little back pain, he did the full-on fusion. 
And apparently he didn't know how to use a screwdriver. Um, so for two years, he just kept giving me Vicodin. And I had no idea because none of this was, this is a long time ago. So this is like uh, 2003. Um, so I had no idea of the opioid crisis. I didn't have a comprehension of it. So um, after two years of him giving it to it, me and me getting sick every once in a while, not understanding what it was, that I, it was the Vicodin me coming off of it. Um, I finally actually, the titanium broke in my back. The screw finally completely severed. Uh, so I went to the ER, they ended up having to do a multitude of surgeries. Uh, so long story short, I ended up having probably more surgeries than birthdays, but I ended up addicted to painkillers, just like you hear probably every story that ends up. They ended up addicted to painkillers, and fortunately, I never moved and tried heroin or anything like that because doctors gave me ample amounts of pain meds. So at some point, though, I realized that I hadn't had any mental health issues, but I became depressed. And when I became depressed, that's when I started using the medication for more than pain, for mental pain as well, if you will, mm -hmm. the escapism. Um, and that's, that gave me a really good understanding now when I look back on it, because in the beginning, it was addiction or dependency, they call it. In the end, it was addiction. Um, so in the beginning, I went to some of the best known treatment centers, and my first experiences were just baffling. I didn't understand it. I couldn't relate to a lot of the people because a lot of these people were saying, you know, I had my first beer and, you know, it was, everything changed, you know, it was like, ah, you know, and I was like, I, I don't understand that. You know, I'm, I'm blacked out, <laughs> you know, and so I, I just, I couldn't comprehend. I couldn't relate and sitting through AA meetings and therapy alone hurt my back and made me want to use pain meds. So, long story short, I ended up in California at another rehab uh, unfortunately, was my counselor had, I think it was 200 days sober. This was my counselor at a, at a place in Laguna Beach. And they were detoxing me from methadone, which was the worst detox in the world. Um, after that, he proceeded to sell me to uh, one sober home. And my, he, he called himself a, uh, whatever, a coach, a peer coach or something. So he inserted himself between my parents and I. Um, with that, he sold me to one home where I woke up and saw heroin for the first time. My roommate was shooting up. That was an experience. My second day at a sober home, we got raided because the house manager was dealing crystal meth. <laughs> so Jesus. the multiple other sober homes in the process. And I just, along the way, saw how dirty it was. And just Can I, can I, can I ask you a quick question? You said sure. sold. Uh, you said that you were sold. Uh, can you elaborate on that? For our listeners, what, what does that mean? Uh, Absolutely. Nowadays, it's called, it's considered patient brokering, um, meaning that rehabs or sober homes or you know, any type are, are actively paying people to bring them clients. So they're doing, they get a commission because they know their insurance is going to pay 30 grand. So they pay these people sometimes $8,000 for one person. Wow. Um, and so Florida's made it illegal. So all the patient brokers just went up to Pennsylvania and they still send them back here. I mean, it's just so many, it's, it's ridiculous. But so that's what I mean by being sold. Uh, he had relationships okay. with multiple sober homes. He would just sell me to another one that was dirty. And now did they offer you financial incentive to go from place to place or was it primarily just the, the broker? Was my parents were paying him and okay. he was doing some very shady things with my parents. So it, it, he was able to, to hide things well. Because I've actually heard that, that that's happening too now is that they're not, you know, they're going directly to the individual and saying, I'll give you $2,000 and a scooter if you go to this place because they take your insurance and they're actually paying the individuals now yeah. uh, to go yeah. out and relapse and then readmit into a different program. And so brokering has taken on a, a whole new face 
of, you yeah. know, you don't even need a broker anymore. You just need that person incentivizing an individual to jump ship, relapse, stay in a hotel, you know, right. uh, or at their house until they can get into the next program, which is. And it's sad because it's such a true story. You can literally drive down Delray beach and, and see people with suitcases. I mean, you know who they are, they're the people who've just gotten kicked out of a legitimate sober home. And then that's who the patient brokers go after, and, you know, fortunate. And, and, you know, that's time and they're trying to find a way, ways around the regulations but um fortunately from california i ended up in florida and and i fortunately ended up at uh it was when it was just handling center down in, in west palm beach florida and they weren't a mat program they were an air highway place but fortunately they like people at betty ford and karen had said where i had the actual doctors say you should actually be a long-term suboxone patient because chronic pain is going to continue, you're always going to have to want to go back to pain meds. So there should be, but unfortunately, policy doesn't allow us to discharge patients on Suboxone. So administrators were overruling the doctors on a medical decision. And that's happening today. It's very, it's very disturbing. So fortunately, I had counselors and a doctor at Hanley that were brave enough to say, you do need to be on it. Administration says we can't let you on it. But try sobriety for a year. If it doesn't work, go see a Suboxone doctor. It's exactly what I did. I, an entire year, at the end of that year, I hadn't had anything to do, nothing, and I was still miserable. Life, I hated life. I did the AA thing, I did everything. Um, it just didn't like it. I went to a Suboxone doctor, and that was nine years ago that I went to the doctor. I've been on the same dose ever since. Never yeah. changed, never had to fill script early, never lost my pills, nothing shady, nothing, ever. Yeah. <laughs> so. With that turned my passion and uh, uh, towards helping. So I kind of started and I actually being a manager of multiple sober homes in the Palm Beach area. I saw a little shadiness there and that was just kind of a, a taste of it. Um, I moved and uh, helped open a rehab in Boca Raton at that point called Dream Recovery International. Um, and I was one of the founding partners and we had uh, some big investors from New York. Um, we grew so fast, very successful program that we had a waiting list. Well, we brought in a bigger investor who ended up bringing in a whole lot of fraud. <laughs> so I was the only person who'd ever handled a P&L or had an economics background or any type of finance, but I was the COO. So I did everything but the, the money. So I kind of found it odd because the CEO had, I think maybe a high school degree and the investors weren't doing anything. So anyway, I did some digging and now they're all serving 15 years. Um, <laughs> They ended up, I think it was 186 million they got away with. Wow. It was, it was bad. I literally stood up and walked straight to the police department and filed a report and uh, I was fired. They actually had the nerve to fire me the next day too, <laughs> but that's all right. They're all in jail now. And uh, with that being said, I kind of went on LinkedIn uh, to, to just talk, talk about it. And it ended right. up being a lot of people, you know, saying, Hey, you know, my place does that too, but I have a family and a career, so I can't do what you did. What was it that they were doing? And are you talking about dream recovery specifically? Yeah, yeah. If, if you can think of the crime they were doing it from patient brokering to lab back, you've got your okay. drug lab and that's still happening these days. Yep. Drug labs want your business. And we were testing all the patients every day. So mm -hmm. you got to think about 45 patients constantly going in and out. That's we had insane. A that quit two weeks, I think three weeks maybe, and uh, when we opened, for good, no, it was a, a, a look like a peaceful leaving. A year later, I was signing a, a UA 
just drug test through the insurance company. But then one of those just things where I just have to sign and go, sign and go. And I noticed the stamp was the doctor that had quit after two weeks. Oh no. Well, getting on the, she was still on the payroll. She wasn't, she wasn't coming to work. And what I found was she was the medical director of 12 different rehabs in various jurisdictions of Southern Florida, where she would just bounce in and maybe once a month show up, write a million scripts for the exact same stuff. Say, you know, even if somebody had been there, oh my God. get an accurate mental diagnosis on somebody detoxing, uh, you just can't yeah. but you can do it in two minutes and continue to do it. But I didn't know she was part of the fraud as well. So, uh, that, that, you know, Dream Recovery said patient brokering. We had actually a lot of the guys that are in jail now for patient brokering. I met them. They were commonly in our office, just walking in and out, just like it was no big deal. And at the time, I didn't know what they were doing necessarily. I thought they were marketing people and that was it. And they were marketing all right. But, you know, it makes me, it makes me wonder because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people in recovery in this industry, right? And I have to imagine that a part of them doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to get into this and act like a drug dealer. Uh, a part of them has some sort of a passion, right? Like they, there's a, there's a reason they went down that road. They maybe initially wanted to help people, but I think it's something about the way the system is set up and how enticing it is to do the wrong thing and how limited some of the regulation is for these people that, you know, they're able to step in and that passion is wonderful but it's, it's unbridled. There's nobody in charge of it. And so they get in and they're like, okay, I've got it. And now someone's like, Hey, can you do this on the side? And the second you compromise that the second you break your integrity and go down that other road, I I think it's easy for people to get lost. You know, like I, I I can imagine that some of these people were well-intentioned in the beginning. Um, I can't imagine they were all criminals just waiting for the opportunity to get involved in the addiction industry, but it turns people. Um, and, and, and the money I think is that you're talking about, you're not talking about a few hundred dollars. You're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. It's getting so little coverage and you'll see these local newspapers. And unfortunately I've gotten enough following on LinkedIn now that people send them to me, you know, just a you know, newspaper saying, you know, hundred million dollar rehab bust. It, it's just not, nobody's seeing the macro. So I, you know, I keep putting them up. I'm like, you know, it's still happening and, and nobody's talking about it. You know, I mean, it actually changed our demographics. I mean, we are living less, like, you know, and, and obviously COVID's the pandemic right now, but if you think about it, opioids have killed way more. Oh, and yeah. Not had any reaction. We, yep. I, mean, I, met, I met with the, one of the many White House policy drug czars under Trump that, that we've had. And, you know, he was only there for, I think, six months, or he's still there, but he's only the director for six months. But he just flat out said, there's really nothing we can do unless Trump thinks of it himself. And that's sad. I wish Trump would have a listening session and listen to people on the phone. You know, I mean, if you have the, no offense to Betty Ford, but if you have him, you know, the CEO saying everybody should be nonprofit making a million a year. Well, (laughs) yeah, if I was making a million, I'd say nonprofit. I mean, that just defies common sense. And science is taking us towards multiple therapies. So a lot of these people, like you said, who, who, been very passionate and become almost rock stars of the of the recovery community um are almost turning aa and matt into a fight you know like the, the i i've actually was told in, in meetings if i was on suboxone i shouldn't be in aa meeting because i wasn't considered clean i, I laughed that off that's me but if i had been a newcomer maybe that, i could have i could have just left and shot up in the parking lot you know mm-hmm. and that's sad i think people need to be careful about well that. that's why i'm i mean i, I have 
you know, I'm, I'm a 12 step person. So that's what I did to get well. Um, and you know, we own a men's sober living up here and it is a 12 step sober living. We don't, we're not saying that it's the only way we're just saying that the guys at that house would prefer to do it that way. So we provide them that environment. And if you'd like a different way, we would refer you out to someplace else, but it's not so much us versus them. It's just that I, I like the idea of Mara, right? Like you, we talked about this before we started recording, but that, that I think that started in Pennsylvania, maybe um, it's kind of migrated its way around and it's a combination of the two. It's, you know, going through that type of recovery process while being on that medication. It's the medication assisted recovery anonymous. Um, if I'm, I think I got that right. Uh, I, I think I think <laughs> that's and, how I thought it was. Yeah. And, and I like the idea uh, and I'm curious to see how it plays out because there is an us versus them mentality. I, I wrote a blog. This is the new war on drugs is the war on how we talk about drugs and whether or not we're treating it the right way. Like for real, how about you just get well? Yeah, <laughs> like, we're all on the same team here. <laughs> yeah, you're not right. You're not wrong. I've done Subox, and I did Suboxone for two years before I stopped, but I stopped because I couldn't use it correctly. I was abusing it still. So I was like, this is not right for me. Uh, and so I had to stop and, and ultimately find another path. But like somebody that could have used it correctly, like yourself, awesome. Right. And yes. I, I, I want more people like you who, who feel like their recovery is – uh, it has helped rebuild their life. And if they're using MAT, one of the things that I think is really missing out there is MAT advocates openly Absolutely. saying, I'm, I'm on MAT and it can work for you because it is a lonely, dark place to be on MAT and to go around from group to group and have people question your recovery, but to not see public figures. Every public figure you see, abstinent, never doing it again. I was a mess. Like, and, and there's nobody out there aside from yourself so far that I've met. And I know people that are on We've it, talked about talk this about before. It. Yeah, we've talked about this before. There's people yeah. out there that we know that we know that they're on Suboxone. But they won't speak. But they don't talk about it. And, and, and I know several that still do the AA thing and keep their, their you know, Suboxone quiet. That's a problem. And that's a yeah. problem for so many people that they don't know. Like, I know plenty of people that are abstinent. I mean, I can just watch TV and there's a new celebrity that's just decided to be abstinent that's now in recovery. Like, all I'm hearing is they don't use drugs anymore. And so for somebody that's trying to use MAT that needs that, who's the inspiration? Like, where's your group of people that are like, no, it works. Where's your group of people that you can get in a room with and everyone in the room is on it and they're talking about how good their life is now. Like, where's the inspiration to stay well using that form of recovery? And that bothers me as a person in recovery because I get it everywhere. I get people supporting my, my form of recovery every time I turn around. Like, oh, you're abstinent? You do the steps? That's great. And I'm like, it is. And oh, you did it too? Oh, you did it too? I'm constantly inspired to keep doing my version. And I feel like that doesn't exist the same way for you, does it? No, and, and it's sad because I understand why people are passionate about what worked for them. And I saw AA save a lot of people. And I saw that I've had a lot of friends die who tried AA too. I mean, and you can argue, and I don't want to hear about statistics and, and all that stuff. It's just, you know, nobody knows. That's that. a waste of breath. <laughs> you know, and you can poke a hole in any of those stats. Yeah. But the fact is, it's just be a productive member of society. We're all on the same side, and whatever it takes to get you there. So be it, you know, if you're not hurting anybody else, then, then, then just do it. Do what needs to be done for you. And a lot of people, it is doing both Suboxone and AA. They yeah. just a way to live life. I mean, yeah. 
I think I think the silence perpetuates the shame, though, you know, and then when we feel shamed about something, then we tend to doubt ourselves and you have people coming off of something that's working for them because they feel ashamed of what they're doing. And that's because no one's speaking out. So thank you for speaking out for whatever form of whatever works, you know, because I know my own my daughter's been on uh, Vivitrol for the last almost three years and that saved her life. She, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that she wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for this form of med and she tried suboxone and it didn't it didn't work for her because she couldn't not um abuse it you right. know the vivitrol right. Right. and just like methadone didn't work for me i couldn't know right. works for others you know we need right and we need we need doctors to sit down and talk to people about what their life is like and what typically you know what would work for them so if you're somebody that needs that's been using a long time and needs that reason to get out of bed every morning maybe methadone is the right thing to do, you know, right. or whatever, whatever it is, but we need to start listening to people and figuring out how, how to make something that work, make a, um, a plan that works for them mm -hmm. and not worry about whether um, somebody, somebody else thinks they're, you know, sober or not. Well, it's interesting. I recently put out an, a post on LinkedIn and normally my post will get, you know, a lot of views and several comments to go with it. And this one, man, it, it, it was just quiet. And I was offering, I was making a point of a lot of facilities have moved, moved to using mat and various forms of it. Why don't you use more mat speakers? You still bring in just AA speakers. So anyway, I'd offered, I said, I would love to come and speak to a lot of the facilities because in the Palm Beach County area, we're well over 400 inpatient rehabs now. So I can throw a rock and hit a place that is running mat right now. Ask me and I'll come speak. I think I had like 16, the normal 16, 20,000 people looked at it. Nobody wanted to talk. Nobody was like, hey, come in and talk to my crowd. I was even offering to do it for free. It wasn't like a consulting thing. It was, I just want to talk about it and get out there. And I'm not somebody, like I say, that, that pushes it because there's cons to it. I mean, I can tell you, I've spoken recently to Titan Pharmaceutical and they make the implant that apparently tapers you off unnoticeably. The sublocade? Um, well, I'm sorry? Is that the sublocade? Sublocates and Divior shot, which lasts okay. for a month. Um, this is a different project, a product, and I don't want to name it. I think it's called Probuclade, Pro um, but yes. it's pharmaceutical. And it, like I said, it's an implant. And I, I'm, I'm, I've been speaking with them. COVID's messed it up. But I, I offered. I said, I would be willing to try your product and keep a daily diary if it really gets you off, if it, if it works and it gets you off taper-wise without a notice. I might have to go back on because of my personal issues, but I would at least be able to know if your product works. And I would be interested to see if it works. Um, I would love to hear about that. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I would, I would love sure. to follow that with you and, and hear about it because that's the number one uh, offender for people falling back into relapses, the titration, you know, the, the, is it too short? Is it too long? Uh, the last two milligrams, they're all terror stories. Mm -hmm. so. It is. It's a nightmare. And I, and I actually just recently found out, um, I had uh, Sam's Club and Walmart decided to stop carrying all forms of smart. They didn't want to deal with it because uh -huh. companies won't pay for it. So they're making cash on it, but they just don't want to deal with the clientele. So for years, I filled Sam's Club and I always wanted to keep same doctor, same pharmacy. I wanted to keep that record so there could never be a question. Well, all of a sudden they just said, we're not going to carry anymore. So I'm stuck with the my script and I got to find a pharmacy. CVS, Walgreens, and when I walk in, I, I look like a nice guy. I'm dressed nice. I get a, I, I, I say hi. I'm friendly. And it's, I, I started noticing when I handed my driver's license with the scripts, which, which is what they'd always ask for, they'd pull me up. And their entire demeanor would change. I didn't understand what it was. 
I got taught a, a lady at Publix grocery store down here, which thank God for them, a pharmacy. She explained it. She said, it's because of your NARC score. I said, my, my what? And it's N-A-R-X. She said, everybody has a NARC score and all the pharmacies has. It. So all the pharmacies that don't share, you know, prescriptions and stuff that they should share, they do share this. And I've actually been working in uh, previous to COVID with Politico on this story because all of us have, if you go to your pharmacist and say, what's my NARC score? I have an opioid score, a barbiturate score, and a amphetamine score. So like Adderall, Ritalin, things like that. So I've never taken Adderall, Ritalin, or been prescribed. And so I have a zero. My opioid score is almost maxed, meaning I'm at the highest, almost the highest risk. So she said, that's why they don't want to fill your prescriptions. They don't want to kill you because you look like an, a person about to OD. Wow. What the computer's telling us. Wow. And I was like, wow, can you stigmatize me more? You know, like, <laughs> I had to show her my LinkedIn and show her that who I was, what I did before she would fill the script. And I, I mean, I, I almost had to go to the hospital and get dilated because I was not going to come off Suboxone because of their rule. And I, I had enough scars to easily get pain meds if I go into a hospital. But wow. I don't do that, you know, but I'm sure as heck not going to go through a detox, you know, just because uh, of that. Every month, it's, you know, luckily I have that pharmacist that trusts me now, but they're about to close down for remodeling. So I got to go through the whole process. But that's another item that, that just worsens things, the whole NARC score. And that, that's going to come out. There's somebody. I've never heard of that before. Me either. In ARX. Yeah. Everybody ask your pharmacist, you'll see their jaw drop. I actually had one Walgreens pharmacist refuse to give me my own. And I said, I know it already. <laughs> I, I named it to him. And he said, you're right, but I can't. I, he, he wouldn't do it. He, didn't, he knew it was a politically heated issue. There's something wrong with it. So. Um, yeah, it's, definitely a, it's definitely a tough subject, uh, the, the MAT. And you know, I don't know, Ryan, if you know who I am, but I'm an interventionist as well. Um, and you know, my, my role, I guess I would say is biased. It's biased in the sense that people don't call me when things are going well. They only call me when it's not working out, right? So, you know, when I get a call uh, that somebody's, uh, that the family wants to do an intervention on their loved one and MAT is involved, it's a struggle for me. Um, and it's a struggle because, you know, they may be using Suboxone or Methadone, um, but it's not, it's clearly not working. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten the call. You know, they're not capable of managing it correctly. And, you know, whenever it comes down to me trying to place them, I have an ongoing battle with the resident physician or medical director, which is that they are super inclined to say, we're not going to detox them from the MAT. And they're basically just going to kind of do treatment while on MAT. And then we're going to put them back on it. And I'm like, so a bath while wearing a trash bag, you were, you were in the bath, but you didn't get wet type of a thing. And, <laughs> you know, I, I struggle with that because I, I do support MAT. I, I, I was on it. I know how it can stabilize and reduce harm and save lives and stuff like that. But if I've gotten the call, if we're at the point of intervention because the life is at risk, I find it difficult that I have to have this battle with these physicians that are like, well, you're not a doctor. I'm like, I understand that, but you don't know the whole story. And you're making a recommendation just based on what people will think of you if you take them off MAT versus what may actually be best is to transition them to some other form of therapy or some other medication that they can try that they wouldn't abuse. And it sucks for me. Uh, I'm not um, like, not pity party, but like it just- Yeah, no, it's hard. a great point. And, and it's certainly an issue that, that needs to be overcome. I'm actually glad they have the new specialty within medicine that doctors are getting now. That, that, you know, they're specializing in addiction medicine. So they yeah. can't be a 
psychologist or whatever that sees that rehab is, you know, where the money's at, so they've moved over, and they don't understand a thing about it. So they're going to tell people like us, who actually do know more than they do, about just this part of medicine, just this part. We're not trying to know it all. You know, my dad always is like, you're Dr. Google, you think you know it all, blah, blah, <laughs> Dr. Google. This part I do know, you know. And, and they, they, they don't listen. So I'm, I'm happy they're at least making an effort. I've made an effort on my LinkedIn to reach out to medical students uh, and new doctors. And, and I'm glad, I, I haven't gotten a lot of them to participate in the subjects, but they're reading and they're yeah. watching. So that, to me, at least as a hope, to see the mm-hmm. new generation is a little more understandable because mm-hmm. some of the most hurt group out of this is chronic pain group. It's yeah. People that were, it's not like opioids are like cigarettes. They actually have a good reason. You know, they do serve a purpose. So it's not like you just need to nix them. I mean, the suicide rate amongst chronic pain users right now is through the roof because all their doctors have forced them off because they don't want the scrutiny mm-hmm. because the EA has come down so hard because of the opioid crisis. But addicts still get what they need. They just make a phone call and get heroin. It's not a problem. But people who've been following the laws are just killing themselves. Um, or turning to illegal substances because the doctors exactly. are shaming them right out of their prescription or they're shutting it down and turning them away. I mean... You're basically exactly creating right. addiction in some areas. It, it truly is. I, I actually had a, a doctor, and I won't, I'm not going to name him, but I had a, a surgery not long ago. I had a quadruple fusion on my neck. So four discs fused, and one had already been fused previously. So it wasn't a fun surgery necessarily. Doctor knew going into it of my suboxone, I was open about it. I woke up from surgery detoxing because they didn't have me on enough morphine that it even equaled to the amount of suboxone that I was on. They only had me, I think it was like five, like a five milligrams. I'm a yeah. six, 200, 200 pound guy. Like, that wouldn't be enough. That's like a Skittle, you know? Yeah. I, me. I was literally detoxing, just pouring in sweat. Like, how's the pain? I'm like, where about the pain? Give me a detox, you know? That's like, crazy. It's unbelievable. It, and it's the lack of knowledge, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. And it's the, it's the stigma of the lack of knowledge. And, and I'm glad to hear, like, like you, you and I have the same goal. We have, different perspectives for where what got us there but we have the same goal and it's not yeah. like we're against the other one you know i yeah. mean we have the same goal and I'll, i've seen people abuse you know matt as well the only plus i say about suboxone is you can't od on it. the only problem I've seen is- people abuse the steps they go in they get oh. the words they use the material they go home they manipulate their family and they go right back to using like they don't get anywhere you know what i mean like you listen if you want to manipulate something you'll find a way drugs no drugs program no program that was Absolutely. my biggest fear while on Suboxone was the, um, what happens if I go to the hospital? How are they going to deal with it? And then I really battled with the relationship with my doctor, um, access to my medication, which was that like, I started to wonder if like, you know, I'd ask my doc- doctor questions when I wanted to see him. Like, are you like going on vacation anytime soon? Or like, <laughs> you know, how'd yeah. you help? Like, how'd you help? You know what I mean? Are you... You gotta prepare for those things. (laughs) I understand it. I've been in that mindset. Yeah, I was like, you know, if you got any vacations coming up, could you just let me know in advance, and then I'll come in. I, you know, I'll come in early or something like that. I just, for for me, that was that was too close to my addiction because I was a very, you know, I was an addict for many, many, many years before I got onto Suboxone, and it was aggressive. So it was that that mentality that got carried over, which is when I heard about Sublocade you know, the, the theory behind it sounded really good to me because it was like, okay, here's this medication that saves lives. Right. And now you're minusing 
the daily activity of taking this thing each day to keep away the withdrawals. And I, I liked the theory behind it. I don't know how successful it's been over the last year. It stops diversion. Yeah, it would definitely and stops diversion. And, you know, I, I, I loved all of that about it. I just haven't heard too much since it came out. I've, I know like five people that have tried it. They're off of it. And I mean, that's it. I don't hear anything about it. I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of knowledge on that and because I, I had reached out to Indivior, the maker of Suboxone, years ago and saying, I'm a walking billboard. Why would you not hire right. me? <laughs> I'm invited to international medical conferences to speak all the time, but not a meeting or not, not react, which is funny. That itself is funny, but it's just, uh, it's just hard to understand. It's, it's hard and I want more and more people to, to realize that we're not at war with each other. We just want to make people better, man. Well, we <laughs> all want the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, like the goal is the same for everybody. I don't know anyone that's like trying to stop that doesn't want what we have, you know? Yeah. I think they're just, there's a million ways to get there and they've got to try the ones that don't work before they find the one that does, right? I mean, that's- Right. And that's that the unfortunate part. That's why you almost need someone like yourself to be following through the whole process. Because if they do go to multiple rehabs, they're not that those those medical files don't follow, and that's sad. You know, right. you spend ninety days at one place, thirty days at one place, sixty days at another. That if you put it all together, you could actually get a pretty decent diagnosis on if this person's bipolar or, or whatever it may. Yeah, be. if they all communicated. <laughs> right, but God, God forbid you collaborate. You know, yeah. it just. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's hard, it's hard to understand, which is what got me writing. And, and I'm going to continue to do so. And I'm actually doing another passion project right now. Um, we're hashtag walk a mile. And it actually started with a, a joke between my mom and myself years ago when Instagram first started and everybody was saying hashtag everything. And I, I didn't really know what it was. I'm not a millennial. So my mom and I had an inside joke and I have a lot of stigma even within my own family. I, I haven't spoken a lot of my own family in years. And I would always just say, hashtag walk a mile. And that was her and I's joke, our inside joke. They'd never been there and they mm -hmm. couldn't understand. And she'd been through everything with me. So she could at least understand from mom's point of view. And uh, see, I'm wearing the pancreatic cancer bracelet, which got her. And then the, the walk a mile bracelet, which is what I'm doing now. So yep. I started it originally as just a anti-stigma thing. Just one of those things to stop with the mental health care and addiction, the stigma, and just what we've been talking about. Um, and it's kind of taken on a life of itself, and, and including the chronic pain and PTSD and whoever it is. If you haven't walked in their shoes, stop the judgment and stop the stigmatization. Um, Absolutely. You know, Ryan, I don't know how you feel about this. I noticed that um, because I, I, I work with a lot of young people going, coming in and out, and I, and, and, um, I noticed that a lot of them have that same great big plastic bag full of medications when they leave and all those same the clonidine the um the uh gabapentin the you know it's like this cocktail that everybody seems to get when they leave a lovely parting gift um i i mean i don't know if you've done any any work around that um about trying to stop that Absolutely. Because there's no way, like you said earlier, you can't diagnose somebody in detox. It's ridiculous. And if they've only got another 20 days, you probably can't diagnose them in those 20 days either because they're, they're not themselves yet. You know, you're going to, it's going to take 60 or 90 days to really get at the root of what's going on with somebody and what they might need. It was, it's almost, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be laughable at some of the things I'd personally been diagnosed as. I mean, right. So to bipolar, to mood disorder, it was like, you talked to me on day three of a detox, you know, like you could have talked to me 10 minutes later and I would have been a different, you know, like 
of course I was, I was a schizo, probably temporary schizo, you know, but yeah. hard to understand. I know these doctors understand it. They're not stupid, but they know the money is within the rehab industry. And the sad part about it is I don't think anything's going to change until the number of people doesn't outweigh the number of people making fortunes because right now there's more people getting rich than dying and there's a lot of people dying so that should just think about and there's it's not just owners of rehab it's sober homes drug rehab certification schools for whatever certification the the legit scripts now you have to have that certification to be a legit rehab you know everybody's finding their way to try to to be the hipaa boss or the regulation if you pay us and they're yeah. to make more money and our insurance I mean, when I was Dream Recovery, we actually had one of our clients. Um, they ended up suing on their own client because he posted the bill on his Facebook, $965,000 to his insurance company, like it was ever going to get paid anyway. But right. a doctor that hadn't worked at our place, he had 12 visits list itemized, and they sued their own client. But there's no regulations. Palm Beach County is absolutely the heartbeat. California and Florida are nightmares. I know Ohio is getting hit hard. But the regulations have to be fixed. And Pennsylvania too, I think. There's just so many, so many treatment centers in Pennsylvania right now. That's where a lot of our patient brokers live now too, unfortunately. I know from a parent's perspective, that's what I started following you originally because you were telling on these people and it was like, yes, somebody's doing this. <laughs> and um, I went through this with my daughter and she was down in Florida because in Massachusetts at the time that she was struggling, there, was, um, there wasn't much in Massachusetts. So that was the thing is to send somebody down to Florida. Um, and uh, she went down there and, and it was a nightmare. I, um, I think Mike's frozen. No. No, you're not. Very intense. I was looking down, but I was listening. He's in the zone. Yeah. You can cut that out, right? No, I'm, I'm going to leave that. Oh, he's don't leave it. You were just yeah. so still. Yeah. <laughs> I was just giving um, an example of how how stoic I can be, how, how I can still I can so. be in times of stress. So I, I wrote a book called If You Love Me, and um, I talk about this. Uh, she went down there and got you know transferred from one fairly good facility um, to, and she wasn't doing, she started to not do the right thing there and they needed to move her, but they wound up moving her without ever speaking to me, which is not okay. And, um, <clears throat> moved her to a place and I was very worried about it and talked to the, um, the executive director and talked to the clinical director. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to stay on this because I was planning on going down there in a, a little over a week. And then I'll figure things out when I get down there, not knowing what I was going to do. Cause I didn't know a quarter, a fraction of what I know now went down there. And, um, every day on the phone with the clinical director, Oh, she's doing wonderful. We, they didn't allow phone calls really, but she was texting me. So she was texting me and, um, letting me know she was okay. And, um, I think I talked to her maybe once in the beginning and she was living in a super house and, uh, and going every day to this treatment center. And they're telling me she's doing wonderful and she's doing an art project and she's got such beautiful art skills. And I'm thinking, Oh, well, maybe this place isn't so bad. And to her art, you know, she used to like art. Maybe this is a new skill that's coming out, a new hobby and thinking all these things. And I get the day before I go down there, I get a phone call from the sober house saying that um, she had, she left like, four days before. I'm talking to the clinical director. They're talking about a whole different Caitlin. They lost to my daughter. She left 
and they were t giving me reports on a, on somebody else named Caitlin. So when when I see you going after the treatment centers, which that treatment center has since closed down, but um, and I was very vocal about who it was and what was going on, and um, but I was no one, you know what I mean? I was just kind of a mom at that point. I had didn't I? I mean, now I have a group that has over twenty five thousand mothers and fathers and parents in it would be a whole different ball game. Somebody would actually listen to me now. But at that point I was, I was nobody. And, yeah. um, but I did go into one of these groups and said, you know, what was going on. And somebody in that group got in touch with the executive director and they called me immediately because they weren't returning my phone calls either. So it's, I'm so glad that you're doing this because I know what it was like to see what was going on and not have a voice, you know, and not be able to do anything about it. I mean, there was just their answer was they were packing their stuff up. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. That's awful. And I, I've, I've witnessed that myself. And it's, I, I can't imagine being in that position. I don't have children, but I watch what I put you know, my parents through. And just I, all I want to do is change that, you know, because I've had, it's funny because I've actually gotten a lot of stuff, if you will, for still having that on my LinkedIn profile. This first thing is rehab whistleblower. And I'm, I'm proud of it. I don't care. Like I had my life, I was bribed. I had my life threatened over it. I mean, I went through a lot of movement. I had a lot of stuff I went through to, to do that. I lost mm -hmm. my equity. I'd put in a company, I had hours of deposition and just, I was a pariah to half the people in the industry. And it, it, it was tough. I mean, all around, it was a, a tough deal to, to go through and to see it still happening and the lack of regulations just not going through is so frustrating. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And I, you know, I put rehab whistleblower back on there. I'd taken it down for a few days, but I put it back up. I was like, you know, because people like yourself, I get so many messages from, Hey, my, my, my daughter died in treatment. My son did this, you know, I, we were fraud, defrauded this way or people yep. that are currently working. Like I said, mm -hmm. um, those people in the beginning, I tried to help and I'd give them an FBI agent that I work with's name or whatever. But at this point I'm kind of telling them, you know what, take the blinders off and do the right thing. Just yeah, well, one of our, our, Flor our Florida administrator is um, um, testified against Kenny Chapman. Good. Her, her daughter Good. died in rehab. I mean, you know, so I up close and personal of seeing. You know, the what doctor for Kenny Chapman, Mendez, is still not in jail. And partners with the doctor that I've been referring to. She doesn't even have a legitimate MD and she's currently practicing and I can't get anybody to stop her. I'm still... I'm actually working with Vice right now to see if they'll do a reporter because I've, I've worked with them, someone just giving them comments for reports. Try yeah. like story. This is a story. Like they their busted her school for not giving legit MDs. And the, I had a deposition for a civil suit where she was sued for a girl's suicide just a couple years ago where I was involved. The lawyer told me what he shouldn't have, which was that she didn't have a real MD and she lied on her resume. And I, it, but it got sealed because she settled. So this lawyer shut up and I've got this information and I even know the attorney that's got it. I'm like, why can't, like. Why do we have to make a television show uh, uh, out, of, out of everything in order to get anything done? Well, listen, exactly. did, did you guys watch The Pharmacist <sighs> on Netflix? I haven't watched it yet, no. Okay. Uh, so so it, it's, it's what you're talking about right now is that, you know, this, this show, The Pharmacist, for those, for those of you that haven't watched it, it's, uh, it's about this gentleman who lost his son uh, to a, a, a drug deal uh, in this town out in, I, I want to say Ohio or something like that. And, um, but he, it sparked this journey for him where he had this like passion to find the killer. 
And then that's, you know, he found the killer and that same passion translated over to, he identified this woman that was uh, uh, giving out opioid prescriptions, uh, Oxycontin, like it was a, a pill mill. It was just absolute ridiculous pill mill. And it took him years and he almost lost his family over it. And every time he turned around, the FBI wouldn't do anything about it. The local police department was in on it. Like he was fighting this David and Goliath battle uh, and everything was at stake because he was fighting against such a large machine, you know? And I, I fear that that's the same battle that you have in your, at your at, right now at, at your uh, approach here is that you're fighting against the machine. Not that you shouldn't stop fighting. You should keep fighting, yeah. but I'm just saying it's a machine. And that machine lines people's pockets. That machine pays people's bills. That machine is going to keep moving. And some of those people are key cogs in that machine. And MDs fit that bill. Unless you can prove like some real amazing stuff, they might just stick around. Like I've heard lots of programs that, oh, we have a new medical director. And you look in, you're like, well, but they have this in the past. Like, how are they even allowed to still do this? They worked at a pill mill and now they're yeah. the medical director of a rehab. But, Talk but about no, he's a whole different guy. But he's a yeah, whole yeah. different guy. You know what Change I mean? Changes perspective. Yeah, he's, he's, he's reformed. And so yeah. it's, it's definitely a machine. And I guess, you know, Maureen and I always ask this question, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is like, if, if you could just change one thing, like just if you could have it your way and you could just do it, and you could just change a thing. What is that thing that you would want to change? What, what's your, what's your hope? I do a complete paradigm shift to the addiction way. We're a complete shift. Uh, one of two things. One, either it moves to be a physical part of a hospital wing and held to the same standards. Um, so, like you know, some hospitals have mental health care have uh, literally physically attached to the and they held to the same standards. Or and you have the doctors with the mandatory certification of addiction doctors. Mm-hmm. So that way you actually know what's going on. And universal medical records would be another thing. Another concept I had, and I've talked about on LinkedIn, I actually had some VCs show some interest, is right now in America, a lot of malls are going out of business, bankrupt and you know, for sale. They're geographically placed perfectly to put like a mental rehab where you have, and I always talk about how they're all the different therapies, but you get all the different specialists and put them in one spot <laughs> and make it so you got your TMS, your EMDR, you know, you know, whatever it is, your mat doctor, your AA person, you know, whatever it is, all the different methodologies, there's a million of them. And then you, you bring the best of the best and everybody's kind of part of a co-op, but you're still your own company. Um, it's a different concept, but kind of an open air type thing. And it's, a recovery mall. Yeah. You know, it's a good, I'm, like I'm an econ guy too. So I look at the replay, but it's a, uh, from a perspective, I just was trying to think of a way to be able to make everybody have all the options available. Cause you know, you can't do all the options. Like you said, you do right. what, which is AA, what you're good at. And if somebody requires something else, then I'm sure you have programs that you trust and you can refer them to. Correct. It'd be great if you could, you know, there was one place that had it all and it's nobody can have it all. I mean, it's, no, when somebody can do everything, then that means that they can't do anything correctly, probably. <laughs> exactly. It means they're all marketing. Right, right. <laughs> kind of like exactly. an AA market, you know, we're a dual diagnosis. If oh my God. Diagnosis, what are you? Yeah. yeah. Like that is, it's, it's, or we have 70%, you know, or any type of, uh, right. The, 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 I the, love picking The on. worst is <laughs> touting, yeah. touting success rates. Yeah, those are the ones I can't stop myself from absolutely going after. I I have one on the website for my company, right? Because people want to see one. 
And so I put one, it's like this little moving bar goes all the way up to 95%. And then the entire paragraph underneath it explains why that number is bullshit. And it doesn't mean anything because how can I possibly track everybody? And the true success depends on you as a family and how far you're invested and blah, 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 blah. So I, I give them the number and then I'm like, but this doesn't mean anything. Right. <laughs> and exactly. I think most programs should do the same. Like how can you at a 30 day program say anything about success rates? Like even foundations recovery network has an entire team set up to track outcomes. But what do you really know? Self-reported outcomes? You know what I mean? Like, I, I remember getting those calls. I would either take it as a joke and tell them how sober I was as I was getting high or ignore it. And they call, they don't call that as a no. They, they, yeah. they don't count that in their survey at all. You didn't answer the phone. Yeah. You don't answer your phone, which is what most people do when they relapse. You're not going to take the call from the alarm. Right. If people all, said, yeah. if people gave like real success rates, it would be 60% of the people complete our 30 day program. From that yeah. point, we don't know what's going on. But yeah, we, don't have a we got like a 60%, we'll graduate the 30 days and we're yeah. hoping for the best. Like I'd be okay with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just tell the truth. At least it would be honest, right? Yeah, yeah. Just tell the, if a program told me that, I'd be like, nice. That's pretty good. You have more than half. I like it. Yeah. I give you props. Yeah. Yeah. We got a good shot. <laughs> yeah. Just what it tells me is that as the interventionist, I got to put together a long-term care plan and I'll add yours into the equation of all the other programs and hopefully we'll come out with a result. Yeah. Cool. Without a doubt. And if yeah. people need the hope, they need, they need focus. So truth and treatment. That's what we need. No, you Tell know what we need. Tell if us they, if, you're doing your best. They might get well here. They got like a 50-50 shot. At least they can. And you might die when you leave. Yeah, we don't know. We're just holding them, babysitting them, giving them some meds, and, you know, and then we'll hand them back. If, yeah. At least if they really, if they said it was 90%, right? 90% success rate, then why don't they, the other 10%, they should be able to come back for free, right? Because then they would have 100%. You don't see what them offering the that. other 10%? Yeah. Where are they? Yeah, yeah where are they? Exactly. Yeah. What did they tell you when you called and asked how they were doing? Were they like, they no, quickly removed me. They don't want a piece of me. They, they don't. They oh, don't. those phone calls would make me so angry because they would act like they cared too. And that used to really piss me off well, because I know do, that's I mean, not why they were calling. That there's so much shame on the other end of the phone. If you did relapse, I mean, you're going to lie. You're lying to your mom about it. What, you're not going to lie to the program that's calling to check in on you? <laughs> I, I, I tell you, there is one new, uh, there's a new interesting, and I'm actually talking to them right now. I might do some work with them. Um, they're called Freedom Now, and they're, they're basically like an urgent care that we all see everywhere, but a psych urgent care, an addiction-focused urgent care. Hmm. So, you know, and right now you can't, bad time for them to be opening during COVID. They, you know, it can't be a 24-7, you know, type clinic like that. But I think it's a good idea, and they're on to a good concept with that, and, and putting their, their, the whole idea is to put a lot of them, uh, and, and urgent care for psych care, because I thought that myself, like if my doctor, like you were joking earlier, you know, get your doctor scheduled, I'm like, man, if my place went out of business tomorrow, you know, luckily not LinkedIn, I can just say it. I need a West Palm Beach doctor, and I'm sure I can find somebody, but if I didn't, be all right. I'd be in some trouble, yeah. I'd need to relapse, you know, I mean, for no reason, no good reason. Um, not that there is a good reason to relapse, but um, that's another thing right now that, you know, a boredom and addiction are so correlated. I have to say that it, I'm glad to see that most of the rehabs I talk to, their census is up and they're very concerned about COVID, but, you know, businesses, you know, people are still coming in and they're very busy. Um, but it, it, it terrifies me. You know, I, I remember, boredom being, you know, just absolutely one of those things that it, it'll cause people to relapse. Um, you know, the reality is, and, and you talk about this, you, the paradigm shift, you know what I mean? You have to flip the whole thing upside down is that, you know, I feel like, um, uh, and I can't, Desmond Tutu, uh, the quote, uh, you know, that the, 
the people floating down the river. We're spending a lot of time mm-hmm. pulling them out of the river and somebody needs to go upstream and figure out why they're jumping in in the first place. Like, yeah, we've got a lot of triage services. You know what I mean? There's tons of detoxes and rehabs and treatments and medications that all help us deal with the fact that it happened. But the reason it's happening is because we have a world that people don't want to live in. <laughs> you know, I use the word American hostage. I'm an American hostage. I was born here, but I didn't choose this country. Like, I'm, I'm here because I was born here and I don't like it, but I can't leave. You know, I, mean, I can't move. I can't just take my kids and leave. Like, I have to try to find a way to get comfortable. And I couldn't as a kid. Like, I did not like the world I was growing up in. Everything was so disconnected. Like, I don't know if you guys have uh, heard about the, um, the 150 member community. Um, there was a gentleman I heard on a podcast, and he talked about that community stretches uh, once you hit about 150 people, that the connection in a community, the the need for people to be accountable to their reputation dies off over about 150 people. Like if you take a tribe um, of 150 people, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what their purpose is, what their job is. People that are born into that community are going to pick up where their parents left off or they're going to fill a need. Everyone has a purpose and everybody knows everybody and your reputation matters, right? You can't live in a community of 150 people with a bad reputation without fixing your shit. Okay. Uh, or addressing it or having it addressed. There's no place to hide, right? Once you get over 150 people, you start to stretch the limits of that community and the need to be accountable to your reputation. You also start to stretch your access to people. You no longer know everybody. You no longer feel as connected. You, you know, and once you get into the millions slash billions, you, you lose purpose. You're not born with a purpose. I need concentric circles. Yeah, you don't even know where you belong or fit in. I mean, Think about neighborhoods, right? You go back to like 80s, 90s, pre-internet neighborhoods. Your, your community was, you knew 20 or 30 people in your neighborhood. You knew some people at school. You knew 150 people maybe yeah. from the people yeah. that work at the, the nearby grocery store to your family and friends, to the sports team, to some kids at school and teachers. That was your community. They knew your business and you knew theirs. <laughs> exactly. Reputation mattered. What you said mattered, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now... Like you said, your kids are growing up so disconnected, but connected, so disconnected that reputation doesn't matter anymore. People, people are behaving differently. People are growing up not feeling connected without a purpose. And I mean, why wouldn't you want to distract yourself with substances? It works. <laughs> yeah, I know. How do we do it. Uh, so I, I'm all for it, man. I, I would love to see a paradigm shift and I would love to see a, a, a change in something. Until then, I'm just going to keep using the tools that are at my disposal and chipping away well, at pulling people out of the river. That's all we can do, and one at a time, and I, I thank you both for what you do and how many people you help. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, a few years ago, went back to Hanley and, and thanked my counselor, and I remember, he remembered it. He said, you know, you, you remembered it. You asked me, I'm a cool dude. Why on earth would I do this job? Apparently, one of the first things I said to him, I said, I said honestly, because I've come from a sales background, I said, with this much of a failure rate, how do you, and I mean, people are dying all the time. How do you deal with it? I mean, how, I mean, how, how do you deal with it? He's like, you know, I don't know what his answer was then. He, and when I, when I came back, he said, this is why. That's why. Back yeah. 10 years later, he was like, yeah. because now you're a leader in the community helping people. He said, so yeah. 10 people that died in your class, you're saving others. He's like, that's yeah. why. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see people like that with the right motivations, um, yeah. you know, to do things. So. I know it takes a lot of courage to, to, to call yourself the rehab whistleblower and to get out there to be vocal and be public and to not worry about, or at least not show that you worry about what people might be saying or thinking or feeling. Cause you are, you're up against the machine. 
And, you know, I, I can't fight that fight. Um, I had to, I had to make a choice a long time back. My board of directors, when I first started the company was like, you got to pick a lane. You're either out advocating and fighting the fight or you're doing the service. And I chose the service and I can't fight. the fight, So I have to rely on people like you to help us change that landscape. And so I applaud your effort. I appreciate your work. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Listeners will uh, we'll check out some you. of your, your, your uh, posts on LinkedIn and support your efforts. I really do. I appreciate it. Yeah, please check me out on LinkedIn, Ryan Ward, and uh, hashtag walk a mile. Uh, Courtney Labonte and I have both founded this, and she's helping me a lot. But uh, best wishes to both of you. Thank you so much for all the people you help. Um, if I can ever be of help on any of you, please reach out. Look forward yeah. to it. Thank you, Ryan. Keep podcast. doing what you're doing. I will. And all right. uh, what about you, Michael? I hope you're not sick. I heard you coughing in one of the podcasts I was listening oh. to. No, no, no. I, oh, I had the yours. flu last year. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't see the date on it. So I was like, the oh, flu. January. Yeah. <laughs> the flu. I, we so don't to know be honest, what it was. I don't even know. I, it lasted for two weeks. For all I know. You're the outbreak monkey. You were really, <laughs> you were really sick too. I was. Oh my God. But they're saying, they're, they're saying you can go back. And if you had flu-like symptoms as far back as like November, um, it could have been Corona mm-hmm. and it could be over now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if your body built antibodies based on you having it, then you might not get it so there's a lot of a lot of fun theories being spun out there about it but uh that's I'm all still, it is uh, theories yeah. i'm still wearing my mask you know i still i still got my my special hand sanitizer the good stuff this is the <laughs> this is the surge step this is like I'm Real cutting into your you want to see something you want to see something sad go on craigslist or letgo.com and type face mask for sale yeah there are so many people price gouging it's pathetic if i was a law enforcement officer i'd be going into screenshotting they're not trying to hide are either like they're just blatantly doing it and like well the, com- the comedy side of it is my I, my cousin put out a post and he's got like a little three-pack bottle of purell and he's like uh willing to trade for a motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> and i mean that's just funny he's obviously not doing yeah. it for the same reason oh. but that is it's an interesting uh it's an interesting thing that's happening out there but it brings out the best and the worst of people Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you, you taking so the time. And Thank you, uh, uh, I will, I look forward to hearing about your efforts and I would, I would love to hear if that company gives you the ability to, to do that. Um, the, the blind taper medication, uh, l- please reach out to me because Absolutely. I would follow that. I would want to have you back on the show because I really want to know if there's an alternative to, uh, I guess we'll just call it a cold stop titration. Like you get down right. to one or two and then you're like, you should be fine. Cause that's not real. Yeah. No. Um, and so no. if that's an available option, I want to know about it. Me too. I look right, forward man. to it. And I thank you both for everything you do and all the people you help and stay healthy. All right. You take too. care. All right. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.